Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 607. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. That was Daisy in the background sneezing, me dog, me dog. Put me door open. I'm going to tell you, just before we get into main fiction, about what happened to her. Cost her £700. But, apart from that, we have an original on Starship Sofa today. Yeah, Steve Toes with Alignment. That's coming in today's show. And, of course, I bloody nearly forgot, man. Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, looking back at genre history. So that's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So yes, Daisy, our pet Doberman, she's about, well, baby Doberman, she's probably about seven months now, and she was going, eight months, was it? Anyway, she was going for the, you know, the operation, yes, the operation, and it gets spaded, and just before I, take, I took her down to this, to get, you know, the, the, the knife, I took her out for a quick walk. Now, if anyone, and by all means, Google it, where we live, Whitburn. Or right on the edge of the coast. And if you look, there's some cliffs right on the edge of the village as well. And I don't know how it happened, but next she was walking beside us. Next I knew she was down the cliffs, which are about as high as a two-story house. And didn't she cut all her leg? I took her into the because I didn't re- I, I realised she'd fell down the cliff, but I didn't realise the severity of how, how she fell down. There was blood everywhere in the in the 
veterinarian consultant room. She says, well, what's, what's happening? What's going on? The vet was quiet. You know what I mean? I was like, oh. I said, it's just happened. I said, I've just took her for a quick walk before I brought her in. I mean, she looked, <laughs> she was looking at us, you know, she looked a bit dubious with all this kind of blood and everything. But anyway, we'll get out a phone call an hour later saying that uh, the operation's not going ahead and we need to do some x-rays and there was just the cut. And thank God, I'm laughing at about it now, but when it happened, I was kind of, oh, my God, you know, because we've heard a few horror stories of, of dogs kind of going over the cliffs. But she's, she's a doorman and she's probably... Past me knees, but not up to me hips, if you know that kind of height, couple of foot high. And but she's a will of a wisp doberman, so she's she must have just like floated down like a feather, you know. That's all I can think of because these cliffs, if you look on Google Earth or Google Maps, you know, they're, they're a fair old size and they're down to kind of pebbly rocks on the bottom. So it it was, wah, yes, there we go. And the obligatory bill after the vets as well, you know. So, <laughs> anyway, let us get into the main fiction. And like I say, it is by Steve Toast, which is, the story is called Alignment. And again, an original to Starship Sova. Steve is from England and now lives in Munich, Germany. He writes regular for 14 Times and Folklore Thursday. His story, Call Out, first published in Innsmouth magazine, was reprinted in The Best Horror of Year 6. And two of his stories have just been published in The Best Horror of Year 11. He also likes old motorbikes and vintage cocktails. Oh, not vintage cocktails. I quite like the idea of that. And you can keep up to date with his work via his link to Steve's Patreon page and a website and his Twitter handle as well. Now, this story is narrated by Margaret. Margaret Essex. Margaret lives the good life on a small piece of rural New South Wales, Australia, with an amazing man, a couple of pets, and all the usual biting, stinging critters that make great horror stories for our visitors and several rambuscish wombats. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present. Alignment by Steve Toes. A corridor passes overhead, drive chains rattling slack on worn sprockets, and Valerie winces as it sheds rotten food waste. Tonight, she will know for certain where the corridors go during curfew when the city fall silent. This thought reassures her. She pulls her hood tight and walks on. A large clump of lubrication grease slips free from a maintenance crane high above the street, hitting the pavement with an audible slap. Viscous hydrocarbons smelling of old bicycles and car scrapyards seep into cracks in the concrete. Valerie watches them soak the roots of several wilted plants. She thinks she sees the leaves turn darker. The city is rotting from within. Valerie knows this. The reek of decaying vegetation does not come from the rubbish tips circling the limits, no matter what the yellow and black environmental health notices say. The stench is too close, too cloying. It does not blow in from the margins. It comes from the vents and gutters, clings to clothes and skin. 
she holds the piece of paper in her hand tighter. They are removing a shop, expended after reaching the end of its three-year life cycle. Ridges along its pressed steel casing catch on the struts that held it in place. Flakes of rust flutter down like leaves in the autumn that no longer happens. Crane hooks rattle. High in his cab, the operator tries to wrench the unit free. Valerie never shopped there. Designer bags and cinch waistcoats, far too exclusive for her pocket. She still feels a sense of mourning as the city decides to reconfigure her district once more. There is a knack to opening the elevator doors. The engineered plant burrs are stiffened with age and do not retract with her skin's touch on the handles. She grips both metal spurs, lifts one, pushes the other away slightly, then wrenches as hard as she can. No one on her corridor wants to tell the city. The elevator would be expended, and there is no guarantee where the new one would be placed within the steel framework that holds everything. Inside, she waits by the second set of doors. Above them, a set of dog-eared cards flicker to show the time interval until her corridor aligns. Fifteen minutes. Fungus gnats crawl out of the gap, lit by intense hydroponic light and scented with the stench of rotting soil. She moves away. The punctuation-sized flies still crawl over her skin. She barely feels them, but kills them all the same. Humid air tastes recycled with a slight hint of brackish seawater. Luminescent algae have started to die off in their tank again, clouding the water, the rubber seal cracked and perished. The elevator shudders within its tower, and not for the first time Valerie wonders if it will collapse through the framework, plummet her to the street below, where she will die stained with algae and flies that cannot find nourishment from her blood. Moss coating both corridor and elevator doors knit together so that they can retract in unison. The moss is old and does not respond quickly to the instructions to grow. She waits and walks around touching each metal wall in turn. The piece of paper is still in her hand and she wants to unfold it. But here isn't the right place. The air is too warm and too moist. She worries the ink will sweat off the page. Sliding the note into an inside pocket, she laces her fingers together. They do not stay still. The corridor aligns. Doors open. Valerie steps into the corridor. The gap between is several inches and looks straight down on the corroded steel that is the city. She imagines the vast bolts percussioning her skull to paper and shudders. Three apartments align at the same time. Almost directly opposite, Mrs. Sandinini unlocks her door, checks her post and takes in her milk. Further down the corridor, the Benson apartment opens and their small tortoiseshell cat skips out. Valerie watches it sniff the air crouch under a small table and urinate, the scent of ammonia drifting down to sting her eyes. There is a flicker, 
Lights flash red, signalling the corridor will be moving off again. The cat does not have time to get back into the apartment. The corridor detaches, and the pet sits on the mat, crying at the door to an apartment that is no longer there. 436 Corridor is 100 metres long, fairly short compared to some. Valerie sits on a wooden ladderback chair, watching flies circle round the ceiling in the heat. There are several fans. None work. The cat pads the carpet with its claws, but there is no one to pay attention. Valerie opens her pocket and takes out the piece of paper. The routes of corridors are shown in red. Elevators marked on in green triangles. Residential in clusters of blue circles. Commercial in yellow squares. Above everything, the service cranes, the digestive tract of the city. She looks down on the worn red and gold carpet to clear her vision of the diagram. There is something missing from the plan. Destinations. Where the corridors go after curfew. The routes are shown between the groups of apartments. In some places, so dense, they become nothing more than ink blotches. Nowhere does it show where the corridors rest. The corridor aligns. Another set of apartments. Four on the far side and seven on hers. She watches the cat pick up a scent that cuts through the cloying heat. Mr. Cantor stands at his door with an open tin of tuna. Chunks of fish stick to his fingers with sunflower oil. The cat licks Mr. Cantor's hand clean, rubs against his legs and forces through to the apartment beyond. Further down, the Leightons come out of their door, shouting at each other in whispers. They are Valerie's neighbours, though their apartment is fifteen kilometres from hers. She is glad. She remembers the arguments through the wall before their apartment got relocated. The corridor moves off once more, undulating, obscuring doors and revealing them as it makes its way through the city. Along the length of the floor, the carpet buckles and stretches. Behind Valerie, the wallpaper is peeling. Black mould stains the exposed underside. She turns slightly in her chair and tears a piece free, scratching with her fingernail, making the paper new and clean, though she knows there are spores she cannot see that will discolour it once more. Barris Tremaine, chairman of the Floor Residential Committee, looms over her. He must have left a neighbour's apartment. Despite the heat, he is wearing moleskin trousers and a thick cotton shirt with vest underneath. Valerie watches sweat streak down his face, rivulets catching on unshaven cheeks. He stinks of booze, not just his breath, but every pore. His skin is yellow, like it's storing waste just below the surface. The city in human form. Strange place to sit, Miss Davis, he says, stressing the word miss as if he was saying prostitute or pusher. Valerie ignores his tone. Comfy, though, she says, taking a bottle of water from her bag, flipping the lid and drinking the clouded liquid slowly. And it is public space, 
it is shared space, but that does not mean that those who share it can use it as they wish. His words are precise. This does not surprise Valerie. She used to read the residential committee minutes regularly. She knows how specific Barris can be with his language. But I'm waiting for something. Surely that's what the corridor is intended for. Waiting. Waiting for doors to open. Waiting to align and go somewhere else. He looks pained. And she wonders if the sweating is more to do with a medical condition than humidity. Nevertheless, we don't expect our residents to just camp out. This is a place of transition, not occupation. You will need to move on soon. Go to your apartment or leave for some other destination. I may be able to leave earlier than planned, she says. That would be the best solution. If you can help me with something. She glances up long enough to catch his expression. He is a man who feels he has been tricked by an inferior. Valerie has no sympathy. She spreads out the piece of paper, uneven carpet distorting the lines. The floorboards underneath have buckled with damp. She can smell rotten wood powdering beneath her feet. These red lines are the routes where the corridors move between apartments, she says, running a fingernail across the page. And this here is our floor, corridor 36. I know this. What I don't know is where the corridor goes after curfew. What does it matter? You shouldn't be out after curfew anyway. This is a lie disguised as a truth. For a moment, Valerie considers reminding Barris of this. Remind him that there is no requirement for any resident to be off the streets by midnight. Remind him that it just means that the corridor no longer serves the apartments scattered throughout the city. At midnight, you are either in or out. There is a bang above them and a slump as something slips and clatters down the outside of the corridor. Martins, Barris says, with the certainty of a man who has recognised knowledge he has control over. I know, Valerie says. They try and chew the insulation around the electrical cables. She has seen their bodies in the streets, heads crushed from the fall, fur scorched in two places, where the electric has entered and exited their bodies. Sometimes there are gnaw marks, though... She never looks closely to see what has got her hungry enough to eat them. Why are you here, miss? The word is pronounced with no less disdain than the last time. Curiosity. I see the corridors moving between the clusters, and then I don't see them, and I'm curious where they go. The corridor aligns. Opposite Valerie, her own apartment aligns. She stands up and picks up the piece of paper. I'll have to find out on my own. You could also contact the city. I'll do that, she says. The door recognises her skin and the fungal lock withdraws its mycelium. She steps inside. 
Outside, the corridor moves off. There are letters on the table. She picks them up. One is addressed to the city resident liaison, the second to the city maintenance office, and the third to the city expend coordination department. She looks at them in turn. Each one has returned to sender, stamped across in red. None have been opened. She puts them back down and stares out of the window. Algae stains the perspex where a leak in the guttering has channeled an ecosystem to glimmer the view. Her apartment is small and out of date, but cheap. The appliance wall should have been replaced several years ago, but the previous resident didn't have the money, and Valerie doesn't have the inclination. She can live with the inconvenience. Placing a tea towel when she irons so rust spots don't stain her clothes. The foam of limestone that finds its way into her bath through the now rotten filter. Her bag is by the door. She packed it in the morning before leaving for work. Everything she might need for the coming night. There is no need to unpack it and check, but she does so anyway. A flask of hot water and a flask of cold water. A small box of herbal tea bags for the first. A second, larger box filled with sandwiches, cake, and cheap chocolate bars. A woolen jumper, in case the temperature in the corridor drops during the early hours. She thinks of it as a picnic, a midnight feast. With care, she packs them all back into the rucksack and fastens the buckles. All she needs to do now is wait. She stares out across the city. Peers through the blur of algae. There is no way to open the window. Each cluster of apartments is meant to be cleaned by an independent contractor. They have never visited since Valerie has lived in the place. She's got used to the green tinge the early morning sunlight gains when it shines through. Now the city is just overcast. Sipping a glass of water, she stares outside for a long time. The corridor aligns. Valerie steps across. The apartment door shuts behind her. A cloud of spores releases. She sees them on her skin, tastes them on the tongue, imagines them taking root, imagines them spreading their fine network of mycelium through her cheeks and jaws, making her part of the city. It is a momentary thought, but her skin feels hollow. The corridor moves off. She is distracted and does not brace herself, stumbling against the wall. Opposite is a cheap reproduction of some old master she does not recognize. She stands up and walks across, running a finger over the canvas. The surface has been 3D printed to replicate the texture of oils, peaks and troughs now doing nothing apart from trapping dust. The dirt settles into the whirls of her skin as easily as it did upon the paintwork. The city's rot is contagious. She sits down in a Queen Anne chair, further along the corridor. The seat shifts under her. Organic fibres groan to respond to pressure, trying to gift her comfort. They are old and worn. Where the stitching is unpicked, they hang down, sepia and thin,
running a finger over them. They try and clasp her skin. She pulls her hand away and resists their settling. A long night is coming, but she is prepared. Opening the bag, she takes out the flask and pours. The water is hot, steam rising to mist her glasses. She lowers in a tea bag, Moroccan mint, though it tastes nothing like the fresh leaves. The scent is clean and sharp. She places the cup down and waits. There will be a lot of waiting. The corridor aligns. Number thirty-seven opens, and the two brothers who live there step across. Each has a bottle, foam from the beer cresting their hands. They salute her and walk down to the elevator door to wait. They are dressed in their best clothes, on their way to one of the clubs which stay open through curfew. Some have beds upstairs for those who fatigue. Valerie cannot remember their names. Does not know if she ever had that knowledge. The city phrase everything. There are no clocks in the corridor, no official time when it will align anywhere. Only a start time and a stop time. The watch feels unfamiliar on her wrist. She turns her arm to look. The hour is later than she thought. The corridor aligns. The two brothers wait while the elevator doors open and let out a crowd of people. They both glance back towards her and look surprised to see she's still sitting there, not moving. The elevator will shut in moments and the corridor will move off, so they pack away their curiosity and leave. The crowd do not pay her any attention. They are inward-looking. Their conversation about the latest distraction. They have no curiosity either. She opens a plastic box, taking out a sandwich and eating, while she watches them. Many she recognises as members of the floor residential committee. There is something in the way they carry themselves. They are mostly older than her. She wonders if the taint of this place is on them. At the end of every day, she tries to scrub it from her own skin, but the humidity and mould in the tiny shower just seem to embed it more. The corridor stops. There is a penthouse lobby crossing their path. And money buys priority. She listens to the tone of conversation shift. They are discussing, complaining to the city that their corridor should get right of way. That the penthouse lobby should not be able to travel when they feel like it. One of the committee, a woman wearing vintage twin set and pearls, says that she will write to the city, to the city resident liaison, to the city mayor. Valerie wonders if their letters will be sent back with "Return to Sender" stamped across them. The corridor aligns. Several of the residents go to their apartments, leaving behind unfinished conversations and the scent of bodies. Only when she glances back does she see Barris stood by himself. He must have been at the far end of the group, hidden by numbers. He is staring. And can't quite focus. She looks away, down the far end of the corridor. When she returns her glance, Barris is stood beside her. Turning his back, he walks off without saying anything, 
and comes back with another chair, placing it opposite. You're blocking the walkway, she says, already knowing sarcasm won't register. He can hardly focus on her, eyes bloodshot and yellow stained. Valerie watches the chair shift underneath him and becomes very conscious of the presence of life in everything around her. Not just the natural parasites that crawl across her skin and the microbes in her gut, but the force grown synthetic biome that cycles in the wall, the chairs, the locks, everything forced to live for a purpose it did not choose. Barris stares at her, not speaking. Though it lacks words, his breath is heavy with whiskey. Valerie waits. She knows that if she does anything, whatever happens next will be her fault. They are a long way from her apartment, and it is late. No one will be joining the corridor at this time of night. She reaches down and loosens the lid of the hot water, holding the flask of boiling liquid in her hand. You could lose your apartment, you know. His words are slurred, and it takes him longer than it should to finish the sentence. I've checked my contract several times, she says. There are no clauses barring me from staying out beyond curfew, from spending time in the corridor. Barris shakes his head. She wonders if he can see her at all. That's not how this works. That's not how the city works. Valerie leans forward into the cloud of alcohol fumes. Barris is not a threat. Not now. But she doesn't let her guard drop. Then tell me how it does work. Tell me how the city decides to expend a commercial unit or apartment. Tell me why no one cleans the windows or repairs, well, anything, she says, pausing. Tell me where the corridors go after curfew. He rubs his forehead with his hand. The skin either side of his wedding ring bloated and swollen. There is a pause, as if he's considering two routes and finds neither attractive. I... I don't know how it works. But you're the chairman of the residential committee. There is no committee. It's all for show. The silence stays between them. Valerie knows it is night outside, knows that the day has eroded away. The corridor holds time still, placid and fixed. What do you mean, it's all for show? There is no committee, he repeats. They pay our rent and pay our bills and we pretend we do something. And the minutes? He shrugs, but the movement is too fast and he almost topples from his chair. There are always problems, always issues to address 
They never do. Never get addressed. There is no resident liaison. No city works department. Valerie stands up and leans against the wall. She thinks she hears beetles behind the wallpaper. Thinks she hears them feasting on the old and brittle paste. Then who is in charge? Silence again. She listens. The city beyond the wall is silent too. During the day, she can place the position of the corridor by the background hum. The quietness of the business district, the grind of conveyor belts carrying waste from the clusters of homes to the rubbish dumps beyond the city limits. Sometimes she even thinks she recognizes the rattle of individual cranes. All that is gone now. There is just her, Barris, silence, and the lies that won't go. Something shifts. The corridor stops moving. It's not the gentle suspension of movement that happens when it aligns. It is sudden, and disruptive. Around the wall, luminescent algae sleep in their bulbs. In the ceiling, hatches open. The light that comes through is red and veined. It robs color from the air, paints everything with pauses. Curfew, Barris says. Valerie turns her wrist and stares at her watch. The time is twelve o two a.m. Doors seal along the length of the corridor. What happens now? Valerie says. Barris does not answer. She turns and repeats herself. The air against her face is too warm. I. Don't know," he says. She stares at him, and knows he's telling the truth. The corridor stays still for a very long time, as does Valerie. Barris does not. Even when he sits, which is not often, he moves constantly, twitching, as if rats are chewing his ribs from the inside. The corridor stays still. Until it doesn't, the pace is aggressive, faster than anything Valerie has experienced. She knows the corridors are only suspended from narrow rails drawn through the city on heavy drive chains, and she worries. She worries she has made a wrong decision. Around her, the corridor pivots from side to side, and the chair rattles under her. The fibers unable to settle. Barris is muttering to himself. She knows it's no longer safe to stand. If she gets concussed, then she will find out nothing. Where are we going? She asks. Barris shrugs. You must have some idea. She thinks the corridor is accelerating, getting faster with every passing moment. She rises from her chair and stumbles across to her front door. The lock is tight. When she places her palm on the handle. A red light flickers around the frame. What would she do? The other side just opens into midair. There is nowhere to go. She tries it once more. 
Why? Why what? Why keep this secret? Barris laughs and reaches into his pocket. I don't have a secret to keep, he says, and lays his wallet on his lap. The committee being a sham is a pretty big secret when you're outside it looking in. The resident liaison not existing is a pretty big secret if you're not included in it. Do you not think? So why? He throws the money at her. She picks the notes up off the floor. They are damp with sweat. She had not noticed how much warmer the corridor has become. She glances down at her arm. It is beaded with sweat of its own. For this. For money. For choices. For the chance to go where I want. When I want. But not after curfew. Everything has rules. She throws the notes back at him. They miss and flutter away. She stands to retrieve them, not wanting to give the old drunk liar an excuse. She falls to the carpet and slides several feet. The stop is sudden, but not complete. The corridor keeps dragging forward like a small child is trying to wrench it through a grate. Valerie stands and runs to the front, presses her ear against the wall. There is a scraping sound, a resistance. The noise intensifies. Metal against hundreds of foreign objects. We're leaving the city, she shouts. There is worry in her voice. She tries to hide it, knowing panic is an infection, but cannot. Barris does not move. I, I don't want to leave the city, he says. He is on his feet before she can do anything. Valerie thinks he's going to rush her, injure her. He does not even notice her. He is too busy trying the doors, one after the other. He gets to his own. When it fails to open, he wrenches harder and harder. Nothing happens. The red glow Valerie knows is there becomes lost in the stained light from above. She stays at the front of the corridor, far from him and his rage. Outside, the metal is peeling. The corridor is shedding, metal casing coming off as it burrows through the vast mound of rubbish that circles the city, flaying itself, revealing its underbelly. It's a slow business. She looks at her watch. An hour has passed since it began. Barris has urinated twice in a far corner. The corridor is too hot. Valerie has sweated any waste out before needing to empty her bladder. Barris is stood, not moving. She watches him. A nerve twitches down his arm, a spasm that the loose fit of his shirt cannot hide. In front of her, the corridor continues to push forward. The grinding sound is louder now. She can hardly hear her own thoughts. The stench of rotting furniture and mulch vegetation stronger, clinging to her clothes. There is no way to scrub herself clean. The corridor presses on. Around her, 
The walls are slack. They hang loose and separated. Whatever is happening is slow and deliberate. Hunger reminds her of her organs. She opened her bag, takes out the food. Opening the lid, the scent of slightly damp bread and warm cheese is too strong. She holds a sandwich out to Barris. Away from the front of the corridor, things are quieter. Uh, I don't want to be here, he says, ignoring the gesture. I do, Valerie says, and she does. She starts eating. Each mouthful has a slight hint of mould. She can feel the joy unfurl within the realisation that soon she'll know where they go. The secrets Barris let slip are just a bonus. The real information she craves is coming. She sips water, ignoring the black specks floating on the surface. We're pushing through the rubbish heaps, she says, to show she knows what's going on. Though it seems to be damaging the metal casing of the corridor. Barris laughs. It's creeping away, Shell. It's Shell? Shell. Skin. Carapace. Who knows? It's scraping it away as it burrows through. Valerie walks across to the wall and places a hand against the wallpaper. It squirms under her touch. Barris is telling the truth. The vast, stretched corridor is not a device. It pulses and breathes. Behind the walls there are organs and blood. Above her, the ceiling seems closer, slumped, heavy. She can see fibres of muscle, veins and ribbons of fat. This does not surprise her. She thinks sweat is dripping down the walls and runs a finger through the liquid. It is more like a gel and reeks of compost. She tries to scrub it from her skin, but it remains... She sits down in the middle of the floor and waits. Two hours pass before the pushing stops. The scraping comes in waves, as if the corridor is resting with the exertion. Barris stays standing the whole time, not sitting with her, not speaking at all. Valerie just stares. The corridor stills. The doors open. They do not open in sequence, but all together. Valerie feels exposed. There is too much space. The corridor is meant to be sealed and defined by its closed-off nature. She doesn't want to go too close to the walls, but the doors are all open, and curiosity bites her like rats. Come with me, she says to Barris. This... Isn't right. Neither is a pretend committee or a living corridor. None of this is right, but still, come with me. She grabs his arm and drags him to the centre of the carpet. From here, she can see partway into one of the doors. Furniture, appliances. She sees shadows of figures not moving. Everything is textured, fibres, red. Pitted with seeds. Why are all the doors open? 
Barris speaks with a low voice, as if to talk any louder would tempt the doors to shut once more. They're all apartments. But we're nowhere near the residential clusters. And even if we were, why are all the doors open at once? Valerie walks until she is stood opposite her own apartment. Inside, she sees her table, the bag beside the door, the window beyond. A copy of her is stood beside the window. It turns. There are no features. The face is fibrous, long braids of juice dripping from seeded flesh. Valerie stumbles back and trips over Barris. He is not moving, mumbling something under his breath. His world has cracked, split apart. She starts looking in the other apartments. Dioramas, carved out of vegetation. She tastes the juice in the air against her tongue. Barris is no longer behind her. She can no longer smell his sweat and glances around in panic. Not that she owes him anything. He's no one to her, a liar, a part of a conspiracy he does not understand. He's standing in front of his door, hands braced on either side of the frame, head bowed. She places a hand on his shoulder. It's mine, he says. He is soaked through. In every detail, every single detail. She has never seen inside Barris's apartment, so can only take his word for it. The floor is covered in the outline of papers stacked against the furniture. A high-backed chair pulled up in front of the window, all shaped out of pulp. The chair pivots, and for a moment Valerie wonders if it will sever and topple to smash on the floor. The figure is the same build as Barris, hands swollen like silhouettes. Though it has no eyes, Valerie knows she is watched. Whatever the room is, it is taking her measure. She reaches in and brushes against the nearest strand of crimson pulp. There is no pain, nothing more than a slight tingling sensation, and then she has no fingers on her left hand. They are gone to sealed nubs that now end at the knuckle. Inside the apartment, she sees no traces of her flesh, her bone. There is now a time when she was complete, and a time when she was not. She cradles her arm. Barris is through the doorway before she can stop him. She tries to reach him and fails. It is too late for Barris. The absorption is slowed by his clothes, the pulp taking time to reach his skin. Once it does, the room softens his muscles. She can see it rivulet to the floor. Chunks of bone turned to sponge. Columns of juice drip from the ceiling as if the room is ripening in front of her. Where the liquid touches his exposed skin, he dissolves. Columns of muscle and bone slivered through. She realises it is savouring him. His feet are eaten away and he collapses to his knees, falling face first. 
the pulp of the room presses against him. For a moment, Valerie thinks he is crawling towards the door, trying to escape. But there is no intent, no way out. Several black seeds press into his bones. She wants to reach in, keep a fragment of this man she hardly knows, so that there will be some memory, some artifact of his passing. She knows that any attempt to retrieve a scrape of marrow or a single fingernail will take more of her. She does it anyway, reaches in and grasps for something, anything to hold on to, not for Barras or remembrance, but for proof, evidence. Her hand is already eroded. The room holds no fear for her now. She draws her arm out. Wrist covered in red, swollen fibres. They melt her muscle away to stain the red and gold carpet under her feet. She grabs the water bottle and swills her palm clear. Sitting on what remains of her skin is a single fragment of skull. Edges rounded and rotten. Mineral softened. She closes her fingers and in the apartment. The pulp closes over Barris, encases him, reduces him to nothing but protein to be reabsorbed. The door slides back into place. Valerie sits on the carpet and looks at her reduced hand. There is no pain, and she knows that the death Barris found within the room was silent, a reduction to nothing. Outside. The corridor passes through the rubbish heaps once more. The stench fills the air. Once through, the walls no longer slump. She listens to the metal carapace grow. Her palm stays closed on the last remains of Barris Tremaine, on her evidence. She knows that there will be a new apartment where Barris once lived, a new apartment where she once lived. And she knows there is no way for her to leave the city again. She looks at her watch. It is six a.m. The commuter rush is about to start. The corridor aligns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite. Of what big wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there you go. Big welcome and big thank you to Steve coming on to Starship Sofa for the first time and with an original. Steve, thank you so much. And Margaret, Margaret, lovely, lovely indeedy. Thank you. So next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. Before I get into today's segment, I would like to remind you that it is my favorite month of the year. And for the 14th year in a row, I am having a daily post-a-thon where I post a Halloween-appropriate spooky bit of October love, and I would hope that you might consider joining me. If you go to amyhstergis.com, you'll see links to all of my social media. I make the post every day, the Halloween countdown post, on my blog, it's on Twitter, it's on my Goodreads blog, and it's also on my Amazon author page blog. So any feed you want to find me on, I just invite you to come along and help me celebrate my daily countdown of october Halloween goodness. So there you go. Consider yourself invited. Now on with today's segment. When I last left you last month in episode 602, I was singing the praises of Roger Luckhurst's essay, From Scientific Romance to Science Fiction, 1817 to 1914, in the anthology Science Fiction, A Literary History, edited by Luckhurst, from the British Library, 2017. And I was particularly thrilled with a passage that I shared that underscores the truly global nature of science fiction. And I'm just going to read part of that paragraph now. To remind you here, it is, and I quote, As genre historians have begun to show, the late 19th century was a crucial period for the development of SF around the world. In Japan, where Verne was translated first in 1817. China, where Huan Zhan Diaswo's Tales from the Moon Colony appeared the year after Verne's From Earth to the Moon was translated in 1903. In India, where Rokea Shikawat Hussein's Gender Inverted Utopia was published in 1905, and in Latin America, where Literatura Fantastica has been dated by Rachel Haywood Ferreira from Phosphorus Surya's Mexico in the year 1970, 1844, Dos Santos's Pages from the History of Brazil, written in the year 2000, 1868-1872, and in Argentina, Eduardo Ladislao Holmberg's The Marvelous Journey of Mr. Knickknack, 1875. End quote. So, lots of good stuff there. Well, I previously talked about Rokea Sakawat Hussein's work in episode 145 back in July 2010, and I talked about Tales from the Moon Colony in last month's episode. So that covers India and China, 
at least in this particular passage, what I'd like to unpack today is the discussion of Latin America. Luckhurst himself refers to Rachel Haywood Ferreira, and so that's where I went, to Ferreira's book, The Emergence of Latin American Science Fiction, published by Wesleyan University Press in 2011. Now, this is, again, a kind of a tip of the iceberg thing. I have a strong suspicion I will want to return to this book and talk more about it later. But for right now, I'd like to talk about the three works that Luckhurst notes that Ferreira underscores as major starting points, turning points, emergence points for Latin American science fiction. Ferreira's mission in this book is to further the argument that science fiction is indeed a global genre, by showing in particular how the genre reached Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico, and how Latin American authors adapted science fiction to speak to their own experiences. The three works that Ferreira identifies as beginning points, emergence points for Latin American science fiction have several things in common. All have utopian elements. All of them delivered a critique from their authors about what needed to be improved or prioritized in their own countries so that progress could come and their lands could take their just places on the world stage. And all three works show the tremendous influence of Western, that is, English language and French language science fiction. Unfortunately, these three works also share another trait, at least as far as my research has taken me thus far, and that is, it doesn't seem that any of the three have been translated into English. That said, hope springs eternal, and I'm hoping that the great work of current science fiction translators and people like Rachel S. Cordasco, who shine a light on science fiction and translation, will push that closer to becoming a reality. So let's look at these three works. The first, From Mexico, the short story Mexico in the Year 1970 by Phosphorus Sirius in 1844, in the literary journal that translates as The Mexican Lyceum. This is a satire of Mexico in 1844, which was chaotic, as Ferreira points out, between 1833 and 1855, for example, the presidency changed hands 37 times. But there is an optimistic view of the future, as an old man of 90 talks to his young nephew about all the progress that's been made. Not because of, he points out, but in spite of the nation's leaders. It's a pretty cool future, too. It's full of sophisticated transportation and communication. Mexico City boasts entertainment, for example, in which actors from France and singers from Italy can hop over a few times a week from Europe to perform. Although one should note that there is still a sense of privileging Europe as a center or the center of culture, even though this Mexico looks pretty advanced itself, the dialogue format allows for a kind of mental time travel as this old man in 1970, who was born in 1880, uh, can look back on a transition that happened in his past, but is in fact the future for the author and the reader at the time.
The next work that Ferreira discusses is from Brazil, Pages from the History of Brazil Written in the Year 2000, by Joaquim Felicio dos Santos, and it was serialized in the author's newspaper from 1868 to 1872. It unfolds in two parts. The first part is a dystopia, as Ferreira explains it. It's a story of the very real struggles in Brazil at the time. But by couching it as science fiction, as this projected history, Dos Santos can criticize the corruption of the government, can attack the notion of monarchy, and can complain about the anti-progressive, anti-scientific forces that he believed held the country back from its rightful evolution. But he can do so from the standpoint of the future victors of the struggle, who ended up on the right side of history. And that's an interesting way to couch this sophisticated critique. The second part, though, this is the part that involves time travel, is utopian. And it's been lauded for how accurate a lot of it actually is, imagining Brazil in 2000. The author describes changes like the relocation of Brazil's capital, the end of slavery, even the creation of the United Nations, and makes a pretty good estimation of Brazil's future, that is, the year 2000, population. But Ferreira points out that Dos Santos wasn't actually trying to predict the future here. He was, and I'm quoting from Ferreira now, using that text to plant seeds of change in his own time. Again, this really underscores the idea of science fiction as an agent of change. And in a sense, the fact that these works look like accurate predictions really show how effective they may have been in planting those seeds and giving those ideas to others as to how society could evolve, could become better, how to get from point A to point B, as it were. The last work that Ferreira underscores is from Argentina, and that is Eduardo Ladislao Holmberg's The Marvelous Journey of Mr. Knickknack, which was serialized in a Buenos Aires newspaper, El Nacional, in 1875 and 1876. And the full title of that novel, which is a mouthful, <laughs> also does a good job of sort of giving you a sense of the novel. So the complete title is The Marvelous Journey of Mr. Knickknack, in which are recounted the prodigious adventures of this gentleman and are made known the institutions, customs, and preoccupations of an unknown world, colon, a spiritist fantasy. The novel starts out being set just a week before its own publication. This reminds me quite a lot, actually, of Edgar Allan Poe, which is appropriate in that Poe had quite a lot of traction in Latin America and quite a lot of influence. So the story begins a week before its actual real publication. When we are told people in Buenos Aires learn that Knickknack claims to have just returned from a trip to Mars. And then, after that sort of framing device, we get Knickknack's tale. With the help of a medium, and now remember that spiritism or spiritualism was considered a kind of science at the time, almost cutting-edge science, Knickknack 
divorces his spirit from his body and makes a kind of astral trek across Mars. There he finds some societies that remind him a lot of home, and with that then, the author can criticize aspects of his own culture and uses that metaphor to make critiques of his own time and place. But Nicknack also finds on Mars some much more utopian societies that seem to have a lot to teach the folks back home. And again, we see here science fiction as an agent of change. Nicknack is telling us about a better world, a better way of doing things. Now, let's get from here to there. In the end, though, Nicknack's attempts to teach others the lessons he learned on this Martian odyssey. Well, they land him in the insane asylum, so that is not a happy ending for Knickknack. But the publisher, who then speaks directly to the reader, says that the big ideas in Knickknack's work still have merit, despite the fact that Knickknack himself appears to suffer from planetary mania. In other words, don't discount the message, because the messenger seems to be a kind of fantastical device. Okay, so I have leaned very heavily here on Ferreira and her analysis of these works, and I suspect I'm going to be coming back to Ferreira quite a bit. This is a fascinating book, and I'll want to talk more about it. The Emergence of Latin American Science Fiction. Again, Rachel Haywood Ferreira. And I also want to give a shout-out again to Science Fiction, A Literary History, edited by Roger Luckhurst, and Luckhurst's essay in that anthology for opening this door to begin with. I suspect we will be talking quite a bit more about a lot of the insights there. I really appreciate the work of these scholars and others that I've referenced in putting science fiction in its proper global context, and I hope that you have enjoyed this as well. I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different as we take another look back into genre history. And in the meantime, happy Halloween. Thank you. Oh, so much. It's like a cooling, a cooling, cool. T- everything's right in the world when you listen to Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, you're a star. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you like these things and you want to help with keep going. Yes, it's now the Patreon plug time. Please, honestly, if you can, that would be fantastic. A couple of a couple of dollars, a couple of quid would be amazing. If you go through Patreon, it just makes it each month. We kind of can just turn it out and I'll be on deeply, deeply humbled and really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Signal getting through, turn on your radio. I wanna 
talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on the radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Hello 